Well, we're glad that you're here this morning, and we have been talking about living the abundant Christian life. And last uh, Sunday, we talked about when things go wrong, because in this life, on a world under a curse of sin, things do go wrong occasionally. What do you do? There is pain, there is grief, there is sorrow, and we talked about taking that pain to Christ. And we looked at the premier passage on comfort in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3-7. through And we said that our word for comfort, parakaleo, to call alongside, the Holy Spirit is the paraclete who comes alongside to help us through our difficult times. We talked about the fact that that word is used ten times in those short five verses in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Four times it's translated consolation, depending on the translation that you have. This is where we want to go to find that encouragement and hope that the word comfort conveys probably more so than any other English word. We mentioned in that passage that God is the God of all comfort. And we talked about the fact that if you live in Comfort, Texas, you would have a daily reminder that God is there and He wants to comfort you. But there was someone attending last Sunday who was way ahead of us on that. And after the uh, first light was concluded, Rita Harmon passed along to me a little card, and it says, We found comfort in Texas. Now, this is on the right track, no pun intended, but we need to give people a track that would make them think. And inside here, it has 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort wherewith we ourselves have been comforted of God. Well, that's good, Rita. We ought to give some of these to everybody. Uh, Rita lives there in comfort. Now, we talked about the fact and when we began our study that Christ has something special in mind for us as Christians. John 10.10. 10. There was our Greek word for comfort, parakaleo. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. And we talked about that life more abundantly and our word abundantly, parasos. It's a Greek word. It means beyond or over or farther. It means much more in quantity and superior in quality. And we get the implication that it's excessive. God is providing for us just in excess of what we might need. We pointed the fact that the Apostle Paul, even though he experienced some difficult times, lived an abundant life and rejoiced in the life that he lived and told us that his circumstances promoted the furtherance of the gospel and he had learned to be content in whatever circumstances he found himself. This abundant life in Christ is not dependent on people or things or circumstances. It's above all of those things. So you might be under some difficult circumstances, but the abundant life is yet available for you. Then we went to 
Ephesians 3.20, and we came to another word, huperesuo, huperesuo. And that means, if you will, hyperabundance. And it means uh, the life more abundantly. Now, it, we're talking about something that is even greater in abundance. It abounds exceedingly. And our verse is Ephesians 3.20. Now unto him that is able to do abundantly, exceeding abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, unto him be glory and the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. So in other words, if you're living the abundant Christian life, you get much more, much more of a lot of things. Now that sounds pretty good. But what are the things that I get? I would want to know that before I sign up for the goods here. Matthew 6.30 tells us something about these things. O oh, you of little faith, so do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans, the heathens, the Gentiles run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now, we're talking about seeking right living when we talk about seeking righteousness. Holiness would have to do with what we are down inside, but righteousness would have to do with what we do and the way we live our lives. So what things would be given to you as you seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness? What things do you think they would be? We've got some ideas. We're going to take a look at that. But I can tell you, He's going to give you everything that you need. But the way you perceive what you need depends upon how you see things in life. And we've talked about that before. When we studied the book of Joshua, we talked about the fact that you can see things through the eyes of faith that will enable you to live differently than the people who can't see it. And we mentioned Joshua and Caleb. The way you see things determines how you live your life. Now we're going to take a look at Paul in just a minute. We're working our way down to Paul. Noah could see a flood coming, you remember. And he worked on a boat for 120 years that would carry his family safely through the flood. The surrounding culture thought he was completely unhinged from reality. But he could see it because he believed what God had told him. Joshua and Caleb, Numbers 14, they could see through the eyes of faith. And they could see the great walled cities out there and the giants in the land but they could see God's promises of what He had given through Moses, and they believed that they would attain the victory. They were the only two guys in that generation who could see that way. Elisha, 2 Kings 6, the king of Assyria had sent part of his army down to a place called Dothan because he heard Elisha was there, and Elisha had been predicting all his troop movements. And so those guys came, and Elisha's servant got up early in the morning, he looked out, he saw horses, chariots, troops, and he was very much afraid. And Elisha said to him, don't worry, 
our army is bigger than theirs. And he prayed that the man's eyes might be opened that he could see. And he looked, and in the mountains surrounding Dothan, he could see horses and chariots of fire. And then Elisha prayed again that all the Syrian army would be struck with blindness. And they were. And he led them right up to Samaria to the king of Israel. Nehemiah could see the walls of Jerusalem being built in 52 days. He had a vision for gathering the materials and organizing the labor force and getting the job done. And he, he believed it so much, he could see it so clearly that he was able to convince all those Israelites who were there who needed protection from their enemy and they got the job done in that very short period of time. Peter could almost see himself walking on the waves of the Sea of Galilee right next to Jesus. But then he got to looking at the storm and he began to sink. Here's a key verse in this way of seeing. Second Corinthians. Well, let's read our Philippians verse here first. I've received everything in full, Paul says. Paul is in prison now. He's uh, in Rome. But he has just received a message from the Philippian church through Epaphroditus and a little gift that they sent. So he says, I've received everything in full. In other words, that you sent. And I have an abundance. I am amply supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus what you sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God, and my God shall supply all your needs according to His riches and glory through Christ Jesus. What will God supply? He'll supply all your needs. Paul is saying while he's in prison, I've got everything I need. I am amply supplied. Now we would say, well, there must be some disconnect here. How could you have everything that you need when you're in prison? Well, it all depends on a way of seeing. The way you see things will determine how you live your life. And here's the way we see things. 2 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7. Therefore, we are always confident, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Now, we do see things still, but we see them with the eyes of our heart. And there's a verse that talks about that. Ephesians 1.18 I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might. In other words, as we see things with understanding in our heart, it gives us strength to do what God calls us to do, which is most of the time just to trust Him in what He's going to provide. Do you see opportunities or do you just see problems? I'm talking about opportunities to trust the Lord. Do you see people as the ultimate cause of the problems? Or do you see principalities and powers and rulers of darkness who are working behind the scenes and trying to manipulate people? And sometimes God allows them to do what they do just like He allowed Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery. Do you see the mess 
Or are you looking for the good that God is going to bring out of the mess, which He promises to do? Do you see yourself as abandoned and all alone? Or do you see that Christ is with you? He will never leave you or forsake you, He says. Do you see the Christian life as a long list of do's and an even longer list of don'ts? Or do you see it as a daily opportunity to serve the King that you love? Do you listen to the Heavenly Father who says, I have so much more in store for you? Or do you listen to the Father of lies who is always saying, if you're a Christian, you're going to get so much less out of life because you're going to have to sacrifice everything and it's going to be terrible and you can't have the fun that the world is having. That's the lie that he tries to give us, that we'll get less. Now, you remember King Hezekiah. He was a good king, but when Sennacherib, king of Assyria, invaded the land, Hezekiah became fearful. And so he took the silver out of the house of the Lord and out of his own treasuries. He stripped the gold from the doors in the temple and he gave all that in tribute to Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. And that meant that Sennacherib would leave him alone for a little while. That's the way it always goes when you make uh, an agreement with the enemy. So in 687, Sennacherib came back again with a powerful army. He was one of the most powerful monarchs the world had ever known, but he was a very treacherous man. And I'm not even going to tell you what he would do when he came in to attack a city and killed all the people and a lot of other cruel things. But when he came back this time, Hezekiah refused to pay up. He rebelled against King Sennacherib. Now, I don't know what happened to him. Maybe his faith had been strengthened in the meantime. And this was probably around the time that Hezekiah was given 15 more years of life, and that might have encouraged him. But Hezekiah said, we're not paying up this time. So the king of Assyria sends three guys. They are Tartan and Rabsaris and Rabshakeh. And that's not their names, but that is their office, like first lieutenant, second lieutenant, captain of the guard. And so they become, come to the uh, city of Jerusalem and they begin to shout because they know the people can hear them over on the other side of the wall. And they shout in the Hebrew language. And they begin to tell in no uncertain terms what Sennacherib is going to do for them. And they are there giving the word and they say, what confidence is this that you have? Uh, you say, it's only empty words. I have counsel and strength for war. But now on whom do you rely now that you have rebelled against me? And that was their word. They went on to say, do not listen to Hezekiah. Make your peace and come out to us. I won't tell you what probably would have happened to them if they came out to the Assyrians. Now in 2 Chronicles, we have the same account as we have in 1 Kings, but here's what they say. Now therefore, let not Hezekiah deceive you nor persuade you in this manner. Neither yet believe him, for no god of any nation or kingdom was able to deliver his people out of mine hand and out of the hand of my fathers. How much less shall your God deliver you 
out of my hand. And that was the word that they gave. Now the devil always says, you're going to get much less. But God says, you're going to get much more. Are we going to believe Him for what He's promised? Or are we going to begin thinking like some of those Israelites probably hearing that began to wonder, how in the world could we be saved from the Assyrians? Egypt can't help us now. Nobody can help us now. They have a huge army and they're beginning the siege of the city. And a siege was a terrible thing. God says, you'll get much more, stick with me. Let's see what He says. Here's what God has promised. Some of the things God has promised. Matthew 6.30 Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? He's going to do much more for you in terms of clothing, which I would think refers to daily needs. And then we're going to run through these pretty quickly. Matthew 7:11. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Well, God has in mind for us some good things. How many good things? Much more good things, particularly than the devil can offer. Luke 12, 24. Consider the ravens, neither do they sow uh, or reap, nor do they have storehouses or barns, but God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Now obviously, in the day and time in which we live, the birds are more valuable because you'll be prosecuted for tampering with an egg of a bald eagle, but you can murder your own child right in the womb. We've got things backward from what God says. But God promises here, if He provides for the birds, He's going to provide for you food. Again, your daily needs. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, much more than having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. Salvation from the wrath of God. Now Paul gets on a roll here in Romans 5. So we have several. Romans 5.10 For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Again, it's God's salvation. And sometimes we just think of home in heaven, by in the sky, by and by. But this has to do with Salvation for today. Salvation in your current situation. Whatever it might be. God is there for deliverance. Romans 5.15 But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. There is our word for excessive again. Abounded. Parisuo. God has more grace than we would ever need. And He wants to give us much more grace, the power and motivation to do what He calls us to do. Romans 5.17 For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, 
much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Much more life. Your life here will be an abundant life. It'll count for much more. You'll get much more out of it than what the world thinks they're getting. We'll take a look at that in just a minute. Romans 5.20, same thing. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Again, much more grace. 2 Corinthians 3.11, For if what was passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Sometimes we don't think much about glory unless maybe it's some athletic team winning and they're celebrating the great uh, fame and fortune and glory that they receive. But this is true glory. Now, I think what that verse is saying is the old system that faded away, the Old Testament and the Mosaic Law, all that faded away. We don't have to go to Tel Aviv this morning to offer a sacrifice. We don't have to uh, observe a certain number of steps on the Sabbath day, men added to that a lot of uh, rules of their own, the traditions of men. But that was glorious. God working through Moses, leading them with the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud. That was glorious, but now this new plan of salvation is certainly far more glorious in Jesus Christ. All of those old things pointing to this new glory of salvation in Christ. Philippians 1.14 most of the brethren in the Lord, being confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Boldness to share the gospel. There's Paul again in prison, and he's talking about the fact that his chains have made the other brothers more bold to preach the gospel. And many more people were converted, even in Caesar's palace, we noted. And then in Hebrews 9, 13-14, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. We're talking about service to God. If you have a clear conscience, you're going to be able to serve God a lot better. And it's the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin. First Peter chapter 1, verse 7, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold, which perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we mentioned this last week with the divine goldsmith. He is purifying and refining your faith. Now, those are some of the things that God has in mind for you when He talks about supplying your need. He has much more. But what does the world have to offer? The world can promise you a lot of things. Fame, fortune, friends, fun, fellowship, fashion, finery, Favor, flattery, food, feasting, folly, friends, and freedom to do whatever you want to do. But you need to know, young people, that the world doesn't always hold good on its promises. And when they get finished with you, they just cast you aside, even as they did the prodigal son, when his money 
ran out. So watch out for what the world has to offer. But what could Christianity possibly offer in comparison to all of that? 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It's a quote from Isaiah 64.4, kind of a loose quote. But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. No one has fully perceived or understood the majesty and the splendor and the beauty of what God has in store for His people. No man has ever even conceived of what is being spoken of here. It's far and away above anything that anyone ever even dreamed of or thought possible. These things are outside the sphere of human discovery. That's the reason we wouldn't even have any idea of what God has in store unless He had revealed it to us. And reveal it, He does. But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. Now, even with the revelation of the Bible, it's difficult to conceive of what God has in store for us. You can read about some of these amazing things in the book of Revelation. You can read in Second Peter about a new heavens and a new earth, the home of righteousness, where everyone is going to have the character of Christ. And there'll be no more sickness or mourning or crying or pain or death because the old order of things will be passed away. There won't even be any conflict in that new world. Some amazing things that God has given to us. Now, when Christianity lines up against the world, the world says you can't possibly match the goodies that we have to offer to people. And that's one reason the world ridicules Christians, especially those who are getting their head chopped off for the sake of Christ or those who are imprisoned or those who have to take a stand against the evil of their day. People in the world see that and they don't, they don't get it. Why would anyone put themselves through this kind of sacrifice and this kind of misery just to be a Christian? Well, to the person who is sacrificing, it's not misery. It's service to the king that they may be going to see pretty quickly. It's a different way of seeing life. If you can see life that Christ has offered, you'll see in contrast to all those things, all the fun the world has, He gives us light to see things as they really are. That's a pretty good thing. He gives us life, eternal life, as well as this abundant life on earth. And He gives us liberty, not the ability to do what you want, but the power to do what you ought to do. Because a lot of times, if you're just doing what you want to do, you can become a slave to your own desires. And that can get you into a whole lot of problems. Would your testimony this morning be that God has supplied everything that you need? In all honesty, could you say, yep, God has given me everything that I need. Well, your answer to that question 
depends on a way of seeing life and seeing things in life. Here's what I mean. 2 Corinthians 4.18 So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now let's take a moment here, and you, you need to help me with this. Here's God saying, I've got for you much more. And some of those things will be invisible, but some of them will be visible. You'll be able to see some of the things that God has supplied for you. Now, let me just uh, let me get us started here. Some things that are invisible that are very important, particularly if you don't have them. One thing would be a pardon. Uh, another thing would be redemption. Christ has bought us back from our sin. Another thing would be an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. And you can't see that inheritance right now except through the eyes of faith, the eyes of understanding of your heart. But it's there. And then there would be some visible things. Now, you all got to help me a little bit. You can choose one on either side. What would it be? We're talking about every spiritual blessing in Christ. Peace. Well, now, you can almost see that, can't you? You can see the results of it. Peace with God. We'll put that one over here. Peace with God. That is very important. Because you may have known somebody that was a little bit older in life and they didn't have peace with God. What else? Oh, yes, look at this. You get a new family. The family of God. Now you're a part of the body of Christ. And not only that, but you got new brothers and sisters... There's sis over there. All right, what else? Assurance. Assurance. Very good. Blessed assurance, we said. Yes. I heard that call. <laughs> All right. All right, in deference to time, let's take a quick look here. Oh, let's see, adoption into the new family. A new father. The devil is no longer your daddy. And, uh, oh, there's a new peace of mind. We got that one. A new body one day. I can't see it, but I'm looking forward to seeing it. A new body. A blank check in the sense that God says, if you abide in me, Jesus says, and my words abide in you, you may ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Now, if you're really abiding in Christ, you're going to be thinking along the lines of His will, I believe. Oh, we got the inheritance. A new home in heaven before we get that final inheritance. The earnest of the Spirit. We got the Holy Spirit as surety for all these things. And then uh, over on the other side there, we got the new family, new brothers and sisters, a new nature. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. A new interest. I'm interested in the Bible now. 
new responsibility as a Christian, a new attitude. Do you know what it's like to have a new attitude? Have you ever been around anybody that had a really bad attitude? And you got a new attitude? It's just like a new life for you. A new awareness of what you ought to do and what you ought not to do. And a new ability to be able to choose the good that you ought to do. Now the world looks at this and says, Man, I don't know. I need to have something that I can see parked in the parking lot out here. And a few other things in the bank too. But we're talking about some things that are going to far outweigh anything that you could have. Now sometimes God supplies all those things of the world as well. And when He does, we talked about the fact that we use things to store up treasure in heaven. And we use those things to promote His kingdom and invest in His kingdom. Now let's go back and see what happened before we close to King Hezgah. Uh, Sennacherib sent a letter. He put it in writing, everything he was going to do to these guys if they didn't surrender and cough up the goods. It was going to be everything this time. And this is in 2 Kings 19 and beginning in verse 1. When King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes. That's what they did in that day when they were really distressed. He covered himself with sackcloth and he entered into the house of God. And then he sent for a guy, Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna the scribe and some other priests, and they covered themselves with sackcloth, and they went to see a guy that could help them out. And this is the first mention of the prophet Isaiah in the Bible. Now the prophet Isaiah was one of those heavy-duty followers of God. And so they go to Isaiah to talk with him, And Isaiah gives them a word. Isaiah said to them, Thus says, thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword. Then uh, the letter comes. Excuse me, that was in response to what they were saying. And then the letter comes, spelling out the doom in detail. And as you skip on down to verse 14, Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it and went up to the house of the Lord and spread the letter out before the Lord. And he began to pray. And let me just tell you what he prayed. O Lord God of Israel, who art enthroned above the cherubim, Thou art the God alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. Thou hast made heaven and earth. Kicking back to creation here. Incline thine ear, O Lord, and hear. Open thine eyes, O Lord, and see. And listen to the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands. So they have destroyed them. And now, O Lord our God, I pray, deliver us from the hand that his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are God. That's got a pretty good motive in that prayer. That they're going to be victorious over this vast army and everybody can know that the power is in Israel and Israel's God. Then verse 35. Then it happened that night. That night. 
the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men rose early the next morning, behold, all of them were dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed, returned home, and lived at Nineveh. And it came about while he was worshiping in the house of his god Nisroch that Adramelech and Sherezer killed him with the sword. And they escaped in the land of Ararat, and Asarhaddon, his son, became king in his place. Instead of much less for Hezekiah, as the Assyrians had promised, it turned out to be much more. Now on May the 27th, 1936, the largest ship ever built to that date was launched at the John Brown Shipyard in Clydebank, Scotland. The Queen Mary was bigger and faster and more powerful than any other ship, and certainly the Titanic. She was as long as three football fields end to end. And for three years, the ship hosted the rich and the famous on both sides of the Atlantic. You could get about 3,000 people on that boat. It was a huge boat. Then the war broke out in Europe. And over at the War Department in London, they began to look at the Queen Mary and they saw the Queen Mary very differently than the Cunard line saw it as a luxury liner that would carry all these people back and forth across the Atlantic and bring in huge profits. But the War Department said, that looks like a troop transport to us and we believe that we will commandeer that thing and we will ship troops across the Atlantic. And that's exactly what they did. The ship was retrofitted, and in the place of about a dozen dishes and saucers, there would be one metal tray with some indentations where you got your food. And this ship would carry 15,000 men and their equipment at one time. There is a picture. You can't see it very clearly, but there are all the men out there on the ship. During the course of the war, the ship transported 800,000 troops over 600,000 miles and played a significant role in almost every major Allied campaign. So this ship got the job done. It holds the record of carrying the most numbers of people of any ship, the largest number of people of any ship ever, 16,683 troops from New York to Great Britain. It was famous. Hitler offered a reward of a quarter million dollars and the Iron Cross to any U-boat captain who could sink the Queen Mary. But nobody could do it. Finished up the war, traveled, transporting over 800,000 troops, over 600,000 miles, we said, and then was put back into... Uh, its job as a luxury liner. I want to read as we close here from uh, John Piper, The Dangerous Duty of Delight. And we're thinking about whether or not we're in war. You believe we're in war after the announcement last Friday? We're in war, and it's a religious war. Of course, the true religion is what we're thinking about. Life is war, says John Piper. All talk of a Christian's right to live luxuriously as a child of the king in this atmosphere sounds hollow. 
especially since the king himself stripped for battle. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life. Paul never dabbles in non-essentials. He lives on the brink of eternity. That's why he sees things so clearly. You want life, which is life indeed, don't you? You don't want ruin, destruction, the pangs of heart. You want all the gain that godliness will bring. Then do not desire to be rich. Be content with the wartime necessities of your life. Set your hope fully on God. Guard yourself from pride. Let your joy in God overflow in a wealth of liberality to a lost and needy world. And you have seen this quote from Matthew Henry. A number of times is not our life a warfare. We have enemies to fight against, a captain to fight for, a banner to fight under certain rules of war by which we are to govern ourselves, and it is now requisite that a soldier be both stout-hearted and well-armed. What about you this morning? Is Christ the captain of your soul? Do you see yourself lounging on the deck of a luxury liner? Or are you on a troop transport with others who are committed to fighting the good fight? Your way of seeing things will determine how you live your life and whether or not you perceive that God will supply all of your need according to His riches in glory through Christ Jesus. I'm thinking that uh, it's pretty peaceful here in Sunday school this morning, but uh, we have got a war going on in this land, and we're going to need to be ready to fight those battles and know that God has supplied all that we need for the fight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your protection of us. We thank You for the great freedoms that we have enjoyed in this land, political freedom. We thank You most of all for freedom from the bondage of sin. And Lord, we want to be strong. We want to be well equipped. We want to be prepared for the days that would seem to be here, the evil day, as Paul describes in Ephesians 6. So we pray that we would be strong in the power of Your might. We pray that we would take up the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit, which is Your Word. We pray that we would enter the battle against the enemy. Thank You for everything You've given us to equip us for this life and for godliness. And we pray that we might see You as the captain leading us and that we might see everything you've provided, and that we might live a life that would count for the cause of your kingdom. We pray these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.